I want to welcome all of you there joining us online um, here in Melbourne, those of you in the commons, in the cafe, those of you driving your car, wherever you're at, welcome to church on this Sunday. And uh, you're going to be turning your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. I titled this message, Pride versus Humility. We're going to see very clearly a, tr- a contrast between a prideful king and a humble servant in Daniel. It's kind of really almost like a part two of the pride and humility that Pastor David was teaching us last week. You remember the big throne up here? Who's on the throne? Is it self or is it God? Let me just set the stage for Daniel chapter 5. This is going to take place now uh, after Nebuchadnezzar has died. In fact, he's been dead now for over 20 years. So a big gap in between chapter 4 and 5. There's been several kings that have come and gone. The first one was one of Nebuchadnezzar's son. He was assassinated after two years. Two other, two other guys came in. They were killed off and so forth. And then uh, a, a son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar became king. His name is Nabonidus. Nabonidus, we know that from history. And Nabonidus put his son, Belshazzar, as the king of the city of Babylon. Not the whole Babylonian empire. That was still his dad, Nebuchadnezzar. But Belshazzar is now the king over the city of, of uh, Babylon. Babylon in Iraq, it's an it's a incredible city that was built. Huge, tall walls. I've heard 300 foot tall. I mean, there's a lot of the ruins that are still there. You can go on and you can see the, the images of it. The walls were so thick, they would do chariot races on the wall, on the top. And then they would have a moat, and then there would be another set of wall. They felt they were so secure in their city. They had a supply of food within the city for 20 years. So they could close things off, because what we find in chapter 5 is the Medo-Persian military had encamped all the way around Babylon. They were under siege, so people couldn't come or go. So the people were all in there. They also had a water supply. When they built this city, the Euphrates River ran underneath one of the walls, ran through diagonally across the city, and came out on the southern end. So they had a water supply, they had food, they had these big tall walls. It was impermeable. People could not, they, they could not attack and get them in. So this is the stage of where we're at in chapter 5, and Belshazzar, he's going to throw a big party. He's not worried about anything. You don't see him looking to God or, or uh, concern at all that his city is, is uh, surrounded by the enemy. Verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Now, if you get thinking that this is just kind of a, a little wine-sipping type of party, um, no, this is where they're going to get you know, totally toasted here. Verse 2, while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, now let me just stop there, it's really his grandfather. In ancient Hebrew, they did not have a word for grandfather, so they would use father, meaning the lineage. He came in the line of Nebuchadnezzar, so he's really his grandson. Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles his wives and his concubines might drink from them. 
Now, let me just say this about the wives and the concubines, not to be confused with the porcupines, but the, the concubines were really like, uh, how do I want to say this? And there were, there were women who were there for pleasure, let's just say that. So these women would not have been at a party like this unless there was a lot of sexual immorality taking place. It was basically a drunken orgy is what this, this big gathering was. Verse 3. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. You see here this self-confidence in Belshazzar. You know, he and his team, they had this big party, even though the, the military is surrounding them. The, the, you might say, well, this, where, where could you have a party this big where you had a thousand nobles along with all the women? In fact, because of all the archaeology that's been done in this area, they have actually unearthed this room where this party would have been at. Let me give you the dimensions of it. 170 feet by 56 feet. There's remnants of columns there. And this is a significant thing, too. There was even some of the white plaster on the walls. And you're going to find that that's significant in the story. This is a real place. You know, archaeology continues to confirm the details that are in Scripture. Never contradicts it. Always confirms. But you see something here in the pride of Belshazzar, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, you remember last week? He had a come-to-Jesus moment, didn't he? he? He gave his heart to the Lord. He was humbled. Remember, he was, he was arrogant and prideful, and God disposed him. And now, all of a sudden, he came to his senses. He gave his life to the Lord, so to speak. He acknowledged that God was the ultimate God, and he wasn't. But his grandson didn't, didn't get that. He felt so entitled as a king, he could just do whatever he wanted to. So here's our first point. Entitlement. We have to be careful. We don't have this in our own lives. Entitlement feeds pride. But humility trusts God and is grateful to him. You don't see these people grateful to God. In fact, you see them mocking God. Why were they taking these goblets that had been used in the temple in Jerusalem? They were really mocking, saying, our gods are better than the God of Israel. See, the, the priests in Israel would have used these goblets and they would have used them in their worship. Remember, there were sacrifices that were done at the temple. And they would, they would put wine in these and they would pour them out on the sacrifices. It was symbolic. Part of the sacrificial rituals that were done were with these goblets by the priests being wine being poured out before the Lord. Instead, they're using them to mock God and to worship false idols. So that's what's taking place here. Verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. Remember, I mentioned that plaster. It's there. Near the lampstand were the, in the royal palace. The king watched the hand. I bet he did. As it wrote, his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. That term there, that legs became weak, uh, well, the, the King James Version says it a little bit different. 
It says that his loins were loosed. Well, let me just share it a little bit more deeply of what that really means. It means the king had an accident. He soiled his royal robe. Yes, he became very weak in those legs at that moment. He's watching this hand. And I was thinking, this, this hand. You know, Captain Hook, he lost a hand, didn't he? But you know where he got his hook? From a second-hand store. <laughs> yes. That's where he got it. But here you see this hand writing on the wall. Do you know, and this is, this is true, this is where the term... The handwriting's on the wall comes from? comes from this story right here. You probably all use that. Handwriting's on the wall. It comes from this story. In fact, many times you'll find sayings that we use today come from Scripture. Verse 7. The king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, and diviners. And then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now, why does it say the third highest ruler? Because King Belshazzar was only the second highest. Remember, his dad was still the king of the whole empire, but his dad didn't live in the city of, uh, of uh, Babylon at this time. History tells us he was in Arabia. He was in, uh, in an Arabian area. Some of what we know that's been discovered in archaeology is that there was something called the Nabonidus Cylinder. The Nabonidus Cylinder, it's now in the British Museum that confirms the fact that Nabonidus was truly the king over the empire and Belshazzar was the king over the city. See, we wouldn't know that just from the scripture, but again, archaeology confirms this. And that's why he could only make them the third highest ruler in the kingdom, because normally you would have thought he would make, this, make him the second highest, but that wasn't his role to give, because he was the second highest. Verse 8, then the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. We don't know why they couldn't read it. Some people have theorized that maybe the writing was vertical instead of horizontal, but it was likely written in Aramaic, so they should have been able to read it, but they couldn't. Maybe God just veiled these wise men so they, they couldn't read and couldn't understand it because his plan, God's plan was for Daniel to come in in a moment. Verse 10, the queen. Now let me just stay there. The queen here is not the wife of Belshazzar. It's really his mom, the queen mom, Okay. And if, if you remember my going through the, uh, the uh, uh, genealogies here, it's, it's really Nebuchadnezzar's daughter who married this Nabonidus, who's now his son, is Belshazzar. Have I confused you yet? I get confused every time I try to explain it. So remember, he's the grandson. His dad is the son-in-law, Nebuchadnezzar. We've been reading about him for a few weeks. So the queen, hearing the voice of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. 
In the time of your father, remember it was grandfather, he was found to be, have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind, knowledge, understanding, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what this writing means. There's one little detail here that I think is interesting. We learned in chapter 1 that Nebuchadnezzar changed Daniel's name, didn't we? To Beltatajar. Beltatajar. But look what the, king call, the queen calls him, queen mother. Calls him by his Jewish name, Daniel. I think because he had so much respect that he was called by his real name. Now he's referred to as a Babylonian name, but not mostly. But look at the, the reputation that Daniel must have had. At this time in history, based on all the different years that have happened, Daniel is likely now about 80 to 85 years of age, probably somewhat semi-retired. We don't know if he still has a high-ranking uh, position in the government. Likely not. He wasn't at this party, but that might have been because he knew what was going to happen there, and he didn't want to have anything to do with it. And even he, uh, the queen mother didn't, wasn't going to be there. She probably knew what was going to be there. But here's, our, here's another point for all of us. I always like to put myself in these stories and try to say, what can I learn from me personally? Here's one. Be a source of godly wisdom for those around us. Does the Spirit of the living God live in you? He lived in Daniel. Did he, does he live in you? See, the, the real wisdom, the real source of wisdom in our lives should be the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit lives in us, we should have more wisdom than the people of the world. And so we should be one that people call on for wisdom, even ungodly people. So I just want to say we should have that kind of reputation that we have wisdom. Don't sell yourself short. God has invested a lot into his people. And we can make a difference in the world that we live in. We can change the culture because of God who lives in us. Don't sell yourself short. Be that source of godly wisdom. You know, study the scriptures. All you do is keep, keep reading the book of Proverbs, and you'll have so much wisdom. The world doesn't have that kind of wisdom. They have knowledge. But they don't always have godly wisdom. Now, verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods, see, he didn't have it completely correct, but the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men enchanters were brought before me to read the writing and tell me what it means, but they couldn't explain it. Now, I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. I love verse 17. I love his response. Look what he says. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself 
and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. The king, what was the king motivated by? He's likely motivated by the same things he's trying to motivate Daniel with. Position, possessions, power. It's the same thing that the people of the world are motivated for today. Position, possessions, power. Daniel was motivated by something different, and so should we. Now, if God has given us those things, great, but that should not be our focus. That shouldn't be our pursuit of life. Man, that's what I'm after. I'm after just to get as many things as possible, to get my name up in lights. I, I just want it where everybody recognizes me that I have this high-level position in the company so I can just tell people what to do. Wrong motive. Now, if you're faithful and you're serving God, exaltation comes from Him. And He may elevate you, but He may not. He knows what we can handle. But that shouldn't be our pursuit. So here's our next point. Humility does not seek glory for oneself, but for God. That's what Daniel was all about. He was always just seeking glory for God, not for himself. Look at Luke 14, 11. These are the words of Jesus. It says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Remember I said all, at the beginning, this is pride versus humility. Here's one of those verses that tr- goes back and forth. You want to be exalted? You be humble. If you're trying to exalt yourself, lift yourself up, be prideful, God has no problem in humbling you. Pastor David talked about it last week. We can either humble ourselves or God can humble us. I'd much rather humble myself, wouldn't you? Here's something I strongly believe. And I don't know everybody here, but I would say the majority of your Christ followers, Jesus is your Lord. You can't get away with the same stuff that the people in the world can. You know, people in the world, they might be able to get by with all the pride, but they're not in the family of God. God loves you too much to allow you to live in a way that's damaging to your relationship to him and to yourself. It's just like this. When we were raising our kids, my wife and I would discipline them. We would give them things. We'd speak into their life. But I wouldn't do that for the neighbor kids. My kids were different. I would speak into their lives in a way that would be different than the neighbor's kids. God is no different. He will, with his kids, you and I, he won't allow us to continually sin successfully. He knows that that will damage us. So if we don't humble ourselves, he will have to get our attention, and he will humble ourselves. So if you want to be exalted, and you're trying to make it happen on your own, and you're a Christ follower, get ready for a fall. It will happen. I've seen it many, many times. This is true, Jesus' statement. It's going to happen to the king here. Verse 18. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. So instead of Daniel starting to read the writing on the wall, he's going to give a little history lesson to the king, and he's also going to rebuke him. He's going to correct him before he reads it. 
Verse 19. Because the high position he gave him, and all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. And those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. So you see, this is kind of a little summary of Nebuchadnezzar, that God had put him in this position. But look at verse 20. He says, but when his heart became arrogant. Really, this is a story, kind of a repeat of what happened in chapter 4. When his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, and that's what pride will do to our hearts, it will harden it, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys, ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. Until, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets them over anyone he wishes. See, when he really acknowledged God in the right perspective, that God is above me instead of I'm above everything else, when that happened, God allowed him to come back into uh, his uh, royal throne and so forth. And we read that last week. But now here's the rebuke to Belshazzar, verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Let's just stop right there. We are under a little more judgment, so to speak, because of our knowledge. God has given to us so much. Too much is given, the scripture says, much more is required. Because we know these things. Maybe Belshazzar didn't seem to learn from the lessons. He said he knew about his grandfather, what had happened, but he ignored it. There are many people that might be even here listening to this message that know the word of God. They know these things, but they're not doing it. Verse 22 again, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself even though you knew this. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You've had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines drank from them. You praise the God of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot save, or excuse me, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. Kind of an interesting little twist there about the hand. Your life is in his hand. He could take it right now if he wants to. Instead, he has sent a hand to give you a warning. See, we know these idols, they could not do anything. But you know what I like about Daniel here? Daniel is more concerned about speaking forth on the behalf of God, saying what he needs to say, than trying to be in good graces with the king. What would you have done in this situation? See, many times we have a trouble with something called man-pleasing. We want everybody to like us, so we don't say what we need to say sometimes. Whoa, I don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers. I want everybody to like me. You know, if I say what I really need to say, they, you know, they're going to turn against me. 
Daniel was speaking to the king here, rebuking him. Why? Because he was speaking on behalf of God. He was bringing truth to the situation. So much truth that this truth could change Belshazzar's future. His life could be saved as a result of this. So here's our next point. Pride always wants to look good to others. But humility does what's right. Where are we at in this? Do we take the side of wanting everybody to like us? We want everybody to, oh, I don't want to ruffle. You know, that's a pride. Or do we say, no, I want to do what's right. I know what I need to do. Look at James 4, 6 up there. But he gives us more grace. And that is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud. I've meditated on this verse many times over the years. And the picture that God has given me about God opposing the proud is I, I take my back to my, to my football days. When I played football, I was either on the offensive line or the def- def- uh, defensive line, offense or defense. And I always have a person across the line from me, opposing me. Either I had to block them or I had to get through to them to get to the ball. Somebody opposing me. And I got thinking, what if God was across the line from me? Would I ever get through? Would I ever win against God? If God was opposing us, we have no chance, do we? If you're prideful, it says that God opposes the proud. Do you think you can ever win against God? Do you think you you can outwit God? Do you think your plan is somehow going to work against God? No way. He says he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I believe this is a warning for us, that God wants to make sure that we don't become like Belshazzar, that we become prideful, not learn from the things of the past, that we become so prideful, we, it's all about us. God will oppose you. He's your, not because he's mad at you, but he doesn't want you to be in that state because he knows it, it's harmful to you. Verse 25. So now he's going to read the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Meeny, meeny, miny, mo. <laughs> no, not quite. Meeny, meeny, tekel, parson. Or some of your translations say you farson. The you just means and. Meeny, meeny, tekel, farson. Here is what these words mean. Meany. That word means numbered. So he goes beyond what the, just the, what the word says to a, a short sentence around each one of them. Meany. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. In other words, you've come up short. And Perez or Perison. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That word parson or farson is very close to the word Persia. All it takes is a little bit of a, uh, some uh, markings that would make that for Persia. Verse 29. Now let me, before I even get into verse 29, I want you to think about this. What should Belshazzar done at that moment? He should have dropped to his knees, 
He should have repented to God. God, I am so sorry. I, I'm so sorry what I've, what I've done. I truly repent, just like his grandfather did. Lord, I acknowledge that I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. I think this was one last warning for this king. And God wrote it. He got his attention, didn't he? I'm sure he sobered up very quickly when he saw that hand there writing on the wall. So God's given him a warning. He gave him a messenger in Daniel to tell him what it meant. But now look what happens next. Verse 29. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain placed around his neck, and he was promoted as the third highest ruler in the kingdom. No repentance, was there? No chain. It's almost like he thought that, okay, here's the man of God. If I give him these gifts, maybe it'll all be done away with. And sometimes people can do that. They can make deals with God, so to speak. Well, you know, I know this is wrong, but maybe if I do this, maybe if I come to church today, it'll be all fine. God's not interested in a deal. You know what he's interested in? Real heart change. And you don't see this with the king. So now let's look what happens in verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. You might be thinking, well, Darius the Mede, the Medes and Persians, how did they get in? This, this city was so fortified. Well, history tells us something. And God has no problem and changing things. Remember I said earlier how the Euphrates River went through the city? We know this from history. Not only did the Medes and Persians have a big military around the city, they also had engineers. Some of you guys are engineers and gals are engineers. What they did was a mile and a half upstream from the city, they diverted the flow of the Euphrates out into a swampy plain and the water started the water level started to drop 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 coming into the city and they were actually able to send the soldiers underneath the wall most of the people were drunk at this time they opened up the gates and the military comes in and takes over they said it was a, it was fairly much a bloodless takeover it wasn't any big battle they just came in take over but they did kill Belshazzar but you know what they didn't kill Daniel Daniel had such a reputation, not only with the Babylonians, but with even others, such as the Medes and Persians. And we're going to read about uh, uh, Daniel next week. He's still around. Now, as we, as we think about this, first of all, Babylon. If you were to read and study the book of Revelation, you would find Babylon talked about a lot. It's the system, the end-time system, that's found in Revelation 17 and 18. There's a one-world government, one-world economic system, one-world religion, referred to as Babylon. It's a system, it's the spirit behind what the Babylonians did. But I want us to further look at, and thinking about what we just read in this story, the contrast between pride versus humility. Because I want us to all learn some very valuable things in our lives. And I'm going to go through it kind of quickly. But if you look at pride versus humility, confidence. Where does, where do, the confident of a prideful person, their confidence is in themselves. Humility, we put our confidence in God. 
How about sinful temptations? When sinful temptations come, if you're prideful, hey, you just give in. It ain't going to hurt anybody. No, no big deal. I have a right. But with humility, we resist temptations. How about live for pleasure? Now, again, pleasure in itself is not wrong, but it's a, it's a matter of, is this our goal in life, that we just live for pleasure? If you're prideful, yes. Humility, no. How about giving God glory? No, pride people don't give God glory. They're looking for it for themselves. In humility, yes, we give God glory. Teachable. Are prideful people teachable? No, and, and you actually saw Daniel talk to the king and say, you didn't learn from your, your grandfather. You knew all this stuff, but you didn't learn. You weren't teachable. I'd much rather learn from someone else's mistakes, wouldn't you? But if you're in humility, yes, you're very teachable. You're open. God's warnings, and I do believe God does give us warnings, and I feel, I feel like this whole message is a warning for all of us. Prideful people, they ignore it. Ah, just pass away. Ah, just go away. In humility, we heed God's warnings. Life of prayer, not in pride, but in humility, yes. We have a life of prayer because we're dependent. We trust on God, so we ask him constantly for his help. Life focus. What is our focus in life? Prideful people, it's about self. But if you're in humility, it's about God and others. And what about serving attitude? If you're prideful, you want people to serve you. But if you're in humility, we serve God and others. Do you see that contrast back and forth? Do you see Daniel up there versus King Belshazzar? Or Belshazzar? Very much. You see that contrast. And you see it today. Now, none of us, I repeat, none of us are completely humble with no pride. Me included. Because if we were, we'd be just like Jesus. None of us have arrived there. But this is our goal. This is what we should be working towards. And so here's what I'm asking, is that if the Holy Spirit is revealing some things to you, saying, you know what, you haven't been very open lately. You haven't been, you know, you've been just always about yourself. You're, you're not, you don't serve anybody. It's all about you. If, if the Holy Spirit's revealing some stuff to you from this chart, take it seriously. Take it as a warning from God and say, I know I need to make some changes. God, I need your help. I don't want to live prideful. Because this is what I believe God is asking for each and every one of us. Now, there's times where there's been handwriting on the wall. Excuse me, handwriting in Scripture. And I, I thought it was an interesting little study to look at. When has the finger of God been writing? First time I could find was with Moses on Mount Sinai. Remember? He wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablet. The finger of God writing it. The second time was here in Babylon, where we read about this story. And you know the third time is God writing with a finger? Remember the woman that was caught in adultery? Jesus, he bent down and he was writing with his finger in the ground. Now, we don't know exactly what he was writing, but most people believe he was writing. Remember, all those people had stones. They were ready to stone that woman who was caught in adultery. By the way, it was a setup because if a woman was caught in adultery, there would be a guy caught too. You don't see him there. So all those guys, when they saw Jesus riding in the ground, they took their stones, they dropped them, and they fled. Likely he was writing maybe their name 
and their sins. You know, there's handwritings against us. And I, I was thinking about this, you know, what would be written about us, the handwriting against us? And uh, I, I, I don't know how many of you got one of the first iPads that came out. You, do you have one of the first iPads? I, I have one of the first iPads that came out. It, uh, <laughs> they were a lot cheaper back then. They didn't have near as many functions to them. Some of you remember the Etch-A-Sketch. In fact, we took our two oldest grandkids shopping a couple weeks ago, and our eight-year-old granddaughter, she's like, I want that. That's so cool, you know? I mean, we, these things were around when I was a kid, you know? But pretend this, with this Etch-A-Sketch, I can draw little lines. I know you won't be able to see it on there, but I can draw little lines. Let's say every time I was drawing a line, it was a sin. It was something. It was a record of it. It was a sin that was being on here, more and more as life goes. But this is the wonderful aspect of our God. The blood of Jesus Christ. Him going to the cross. Because you know what the, him going to the cross is like? Completely gone. That's what it's like when God forgives us of our sin. We even have a scripture for it. Colossians 2. Look at it on the screen. It says this, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting, let me repeat that, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which is contrary to us, and he's taken it, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Amen? That's what the Lord has done for you and me. He's taken the handwriting that was against us, just like there was handwriting against King Belshazzar. But he didn't heed the warning, did he? He stayed in a state of pride, and God took him out. But we can have those handwriting requirements against us, our sin, wiped completely away by what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Have they been done that for you? Has God taken your sins away completely? And the Bible says as far as the east is from the west. And if he hasn't, he's willing to do that today. Our responsibility is to surrender our life to Jesus. To make him the Lord of our life. That means the master of our life. That we follow Jesus. That we are humble in that respect. That we surrender, as we just sang, re-surrender. We live for him and not for ourselves. Because when we do that, when we die to ourselves, when we become born again, he wipes away our sin. Now, every time, as a, as a believer, every time we continue to sin, we have to catch ourselves we repent, we go back to the Lord. He says he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. But we have to confess our sin. We continually do that. So as we get ready to pray, I want to pray for all of us that if God has revealed some pride in our lives, that we'd be willing to do business with God and take care of that. And for those of you that need to surrender or resurrender your life to Jesus Christ, I'm going to invite you at the end of this service to come down here. In all of our services, we've had people come down, surrender their life to Jesus Christ, have those sins 
Because I don't know. Here's what I do know. God has provided a warning to us out of this chapter. And I don't know how many times he will warn you. You have no guarantees for tomorrow. And the fact that he's allowed you to be here at this time to hear this message and hear this warning, if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, don't harden your heart. Soften it to God. Don't leave here and say, ah, I got all my whole life to do that. No, you don't. So let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what you have spoken to us here through the story of Daniel. As we see the pride of the king versus the humility of Daniel, Lord, show each and every one of us, if we have pride in our lives, things that we need to get rid of, things that we need to change in our lives, help us to be humble so that we don't have to be humbled by you. And Lord, I pray for anyone here or watching online who needs to surrender their life to you, Get back in a right relationship with you. Have those judgments that are written on a tablet somewhere against us to be wiped out. That you would forgive us of our sins. I pray that today, Lord, would be the day of salvation. That at the end of the service, people would come down forward and give their life to you. If they're watching online, there's a phone number they can call. And somebody will talk to them and pray with them. So we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And we all said, amen. Would you stand as we get ready to close in one more worship song? thing to pray. God, make us holy like you are. As we close this service, I just first of all want to thank you all for being here. If you're newer to the church, you're, you're maybe still checking out churches, that's great. We're glad that you're here. 
We have a place out uh, to my right, our commons. We have an information center. We'd love to meet you, talk to you out there. Those of you that are interested about the Calvary Chapel Titusville, maybe you know relatives up in Titusville, friends, you want to get some information about the church, Paul and Pauline uh, are out there by the elevator. If you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ, it's real easy for you just to say, eh, I'll do it another time. Just walk out those doors. I'm going to challenge you. Be bold for God. Be strong and say, I know I need to do it. Today, we'd be glad to pray with you, encourage you, get started or restarted back on a walk with Jesus Christ. The most important decision you'll ever make. Obviously, if you have other prayer needs, our team will be up here to pray for those as well. And the last thing, too, as I just remind you, your generous giving allows us to do what we do here. Thank you for giving. Our wooden boxes are by the doors for you to put tithes and offerings in, or you can give online as well. Thank you all for being here. And as I just share my heart with you for a moment, I just want to say we have been given a great responsibility. When I see what Daniel did in his ungodly culture, don't just complain about the ungodly culture we live in. Be a part of bringing a positive change. Amen? We can do that. We have the Spirit of God in us. And so we can do that. So let's not, be, let's not just be complainers. Let's be changers for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God. Amen? Have a great rest of your day.